0: You're listening to Payments Innovation, a podcast dedicated to helping business leaders navigate today's global digital economy. Looking to learn about the latest innovations within fintech and payments, you've come to the right place. Let's get into the show. Hello, and welcome again to another episode of our Payments Innovation podcast. I'm your host Richard Arundel from Currency Cloud. Um, I think this could be our hundredth episode. I don't know if there's a way to check. My marketing people haven't validated that, but I'm I'm saying it's our hundredth episode, um, and we've got two awesome guests uh, today to celebrate that centenary. Uh, first, we have Dieter Halfar, um, who is a partner at Elixir, and we have our very own David Rees, who is the program director for our strategic partnerships here at Currency Cloud. Dieter, David, welcome to the show. Thank you, Richard. Hey, Richard. Um, so we're going to dive into the world of kind of digital banking. Um, look at kind of the landscape what's happening today and then kind of dissect it and the the, the optionality of of you know how to launch a digital banking service and digital banking uh, services for customers um if you indulge me for kind of two seconds let me give where I think or where, how I view the industry um I think there are kind of three components of this I see kind of your your fintech, Kind of challenges or banks. Some of them didn't start as banks, but you know they've, they've migrated to to offer a kind of full banking service. You know, household names: Revolut, Starling, Monzo in the UK. You've got N26, Mercury, and Row over the other side of the Atlantic in the US. I think that's a really interesting space. And I think what's happening there, you've got perhaps other fintech firms who are perhaps in other kind of financial sectors, kind of migrating into this world as well. So alternative lending platforms, you know, the wealth techs, lending platforms. And we're going to dive into that later. You then have the traditional kind of incumbent banks who are looking to respond to this kind of digital appetite from their customers and also the, the challenge represented by these neobanks. And then you have, I guess, the rise of embedded finance with you know non-banking, non-financial service kind of brands who are, are moving into offering some kind of digital banking proposition, maybe not, not full-stack banking, but some kind of digital banking proposition. Um, that's my opinion. But I'm going to open it up to you two, um, being the experts, living and breathing this, but also maybe just introduce yourselves quickly in terms of you know what you do. So, Dieter, over to you. Excellent. Be Thanks, good. Richard. And uh, thank you again for the opportunity to um, spend some time with you
1: guys. Always enjoy it. So, yes, my name is Dieter Holfer. I'm a partner at Elixir. I look after a number of our financial services clients. So, uh, to your point, Richard, you know we definitely have a point of view in terms of the work that we do um, around both the regulated and the non-regulated entities uh, attempting, you know, either a transformation of their core legacy uh, kind of platform or entering the market and competing with the the likes of the neobanks. So some of the work that we've done really talks to some of the points you've raised and happy to be here and, and share uh, some of our thoughts and, and insights.
0: Great to have you. Um, and Dave? Yeah. Hi, guys. It's uh, Dave
2: Reese, A bit of a currency life where I realized I've been here for over 10 years, which is a horrible thought. Um, but so I want data, So I live in this world quite a lot in the sense that either... Um, organizations that are on that journey to becoming a full stack bank and the path they take or existing financial organizations and how they maybe try and digitize their their existing offering or create a new a new subset of products for their existing customers my world is slightly more t- tailored towards the the route to actually do this and achieve that end goal and i think rich one of the things you touched upon is really interesting for me is this what is the the end point or this ultimate north star that people are building towards and is there this nirvana of a, a, a super app for all your financial services, this
0: in, 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 one, in one part of your phone? So, as I said, we're going to get into, I guess, the options and the way, the ways in which you know, whichever category you fall into, you know, be it a neobanker, an incumbent, um, or an in embedded finance kind of brand. And I guess there are more and more options now. Certainly, over, you know, Dave, you, you said you you're a, a lifetimer uh, did you get your pen after the 10 years so i don't know if i got mine but um, and Deedra, i know you've you've done a similar amount of time at elixir and, and kind of been in this world for a while but before we go into that why don't we kind of have a look at some of the key considerations that a company might take to go one of those paths so dude i'm going to come to you and kind of say what, what's going on in people's minds when they're thinking you know what, what do i want to do here mm. No, Richard. Exactly. I mean, we, we often start our
1: engagements with clients coming to us and wanting to compete in the world of digital banking. And one of the first things we we have to kind of tease out and, and really make sure that we get right is why are you doing it and um, what's driving your desire to actually even enter the the, the financial services space. A lot of our um, clients, so one one particular client, for instance, a regulated. A uh, bank was very clear about why they wanted to do it. They, sitting on core infrastructure, core legacy infrastructure, they they need to compete and they need to win in the market. And they, the threat of disruptions and new new banks can't be ignored. So for them, it's an opportunity to reengineer their customer experience. And and it's getting more and more difficult to compete with the exceptional focus that neobanks have on customer experience, um, it's getting really difficult to compete uh, against those with um, some of the legacy architectures. And banks have done a tremendous job in terms of re-architecting a lot of their digital channels and, and focus on digital engagement in the front end. But I think they're kind of they're getting to the end of the road in terms of what they can do with essentially lipstick on a pig. At some point, you've got to address the fact that your core legacy systems just have to be replaced. And we're seeing more and more of our customers and wanting to go on that on that journey, or having gone on that journey, spent an absolute fortune, failing at doing that transformation internally, and now turning to 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 the idea of a digital bank of building a digital bank on the side, almost as an adjacency, um, and using different delivery methods and execution models for that. So one part of our of our clients uh, kind of segments come to us and say they need to compete. Can we help them rethink how digital banking model would work? We don't want to rely on legacy and core, so we're looking for for new ways. And we, we have to kind of then go through some model options in terms of how you do that. Other other clients, non-financial uh, uh, clients, um, often in, in, in uh, tangential financial services industries, you know, i.e. insurance industry, as an example, quite often comes to us and says they want to compete as well, but for a different reason. I, you know, if you think about the insurance industry, especially in the life insurance uh, industry, your ability, the the number of touch points you have with your customer really depends on kind of how you're currently selling, often based on broker relationships. You're touching the client maybe once or twice a year, you know, once you sell the policy and maybe on an annual review. And it's become clear that most organizations want to deepen their customer relationships. And how do you do that with your existing business model? You need to find some sort of a relevance, some some sort of a, a way of reaching out to your customers to have a relevant conversation. Transactional banking, because of its nature, often allows these firms, therefore, to have a much richer and more daily touchpoint with their customers. So, often the insurance industry is moving into financial services because they see the the rich transactional data and ability to actually touch the client more often as an opportunity to cross-sell and enhance the way they, they, they compete in the market. So, for them, it's about… Finding ways to be more relevant in the in the lives of customers on a daily basis, and so they're moving into financial services to create that touch point. Um, so often, as I say, it, you know, right out the bat, it's very important to understand what are you trying to achieve.
0: Um, listen, I think it's a really important point. And I think that the data point is often overlooked when it comes to you know the whole world of kind of embedding these these kind of banking products or these other financial services, and actually some of the the, the new providers are best placed to deliver the right services to the customer. And ultimately, that's what it's all about. It's around, and, you know, you are, and, and all of us here have benefited from the rise in you know either you know, some form of kind of digital banking or digital banking services. So, so Dave, um, I also wanted to kind of pick up on, obviously, you know, I gave a very quick intro of, of what I see in the industry, but maybe we can call out some specific examples. I've said, I, I called out the household names in the kind of the fintech neobank world, but there, there are some big names who've tried this, and there have been some successes. And successes with you know some some of the traditional banking stuff, but also some notable, I guess, failures or, or false starts. Maybe we can touch on kind of where, where you see that at the moment as well.
2: Yeah, I mean, certainly the starting on the failures, and I think this is this is probably swing behind the point that, that Dito has just made. Really, um, the expectation of the end customer is just getting greater and greater. Um, and how we fulfill those needs is becoming really much, you, you must be a customer-centric organization to be successful in the future. Um, where I've seen, certainly the, the examples in the market which, which um, new digital offerings or new financial services haven't quite taken effect is, um, I'm, I'm actually going to draw it back to some of the more fundamental like, values and culture um, that I think that certainly legacy organizations kind of struggle with. FinTechs are, are, are more of a because, They've lived that world since day dog. Whereas these more mature established banks, who are potentially decades, if not hundreds of years old, um, they don't quite necessarily appreciate how impactful technology is. And it takes quite a lot to admit that you can't be the best to do everything in your organization. And it's relying on third parties to come in and actually support you and assist you. And that's certainly something that we've we've seen. And some banks and some financial organisations are better at recognising others. So when, Dita, you talked about why banks want to go on this journey, there's a secondary question, a quick follow-up saying, once you've got the why, well, what do you want to own? And then what do you actually want to rely on as, as, as third-party providers, which I think is, is a difficult question for organisations to go and ask themselves. And often there's not a right answer.
1: 100% right, though I mean, I think the only thing I would say is before before even worrying about what, what are the primary components you want to own versus kind of those that maybe other partners are better suited at, I think there is a, there's a, an increasing realisation that, to your point, in order to compete, you really need to think very carefully about the product features that that you launch and how you're going to differentiate. I mean, we've, we're talking about some failures. You know, it's quite it's quite public. JP Morgan's um, uh, Fin, for example, launching that and kind of pulling back from the market after recognizing that actually they really had a. Diff- I mean, it was it's quite well public- documented that it's actually that. That was a classic case of not being able to differentiate from your competitors well enough. You know, like a huge amount of effort spent on building a digital mobile proposition and then really not recognizing that or early enough, recognizing that it, it just doesn't differentiate. And I think just to,
2: to swim behind that point is that the challenge I've got was certainly against a cultural aspect is around that failure piece. As fintechs, we fail all the time. But we fail in small increments and then we learn and we iterate and then we try and do something different. And it's finding the right partners, finding the right organisations, or find your own people internally who are able to plot that path to ultimately being successful through a series of of mistakes and missteps. And again, I think culturally, some organisations would struggle with that, is my Experience to date in the market. Again, Dito, you're probably slightly close to this with banks. I mean, it's 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 getting. I
1: think it's getting better, David. It's taken years, obviously, for the banking industry to to kind of get their heads around it. But you're 100 right. The cultivating a culture where you tolerate failure, or at least learning it, you know, learning from the mistakes, and 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 setting up the organisation to be able to experiment and test and learn at pace has been one of the the core capabilities that we firmly believe you need to invest in in order to outcompete uh, in, in, or to be able to compete in the market and and, and, and win. Um, so for us innovation in at least in financial services has never really been about the technology it's been about creating the capabilities of an organization to stand up and experiment test and learn at pace, reducing the cost and risk of making a mistake. And when you do make that mistake, so as you said, because the cost is so low of doing that, you can pivot, you can you you can you can rise above that quite quickly, um, and you can use those learnings to then drive the next action. So that's always been, I mean, we, we've certainly seen this in the last six or seven years, the work we've been doing in the global innovation ecosystem with a lot of our partners. We co-create products all the time. And one of the defining factors is your ability to test the value proposition up front quite quickly with real customers in a way that's, you know, it's about days and weeks um, in terms of testing and finding data points as opposed to months and years. So definitely that way of work is a key cultural and organizational capability issue that needs to be solved. And then really being clear about once you've got the value proposition validated, you've got early indications of product market fit, then to make the right buy and build decisions. And this is where the different model options of how you approach building a digital bank and having a full understanding of what are your options up front and really debating the pros and cons of each one of those, again, aligned to your strategic intent and what you're trying to get out of it, is super important. And, and you know, personally, I think I've, we, we've seen, again, depending who you are, um, uh, some of those model options are, are quite obvious up front. You know, take a regulated bank as an example. Regulated ent- entity that is, is has got the licensing in place, um, as a, a full banking license in place, for instance, might feel that... Uh, actually, you know what, they've got all the capability and the regulatory oversight capability to just refresh their core technology. So they'll often go out and actually just go and partner with a core banking provider, and they might kind of even already have their own front end in place. So really for them, it's about just changing out the core banking provider and maybe partnering with somebody like yourselves for, for the, the cross-border ethics. It could be as simple as that. It's you know, a core banking provider and, and an FX uh, uh, provider. For some of the non-regulated uh, uh, providers who have zero base, like a zero capability, they have some more options, right? You're talking about opp- opportunity to go to a banking as a service provider, full white label bank in a box. That is an attractive option for many for many of our, our, our clients, right? The ability for you to launch quickly at a fairly low cost is very attractive. If your intent is to get a transactional card in the hand of a customer within weeks and months, then... Banking as a service player makes absolute sense. It does come with some cons. Other options, acquiring an e-money institute uh, license by by acquisition play or a joint venture might be something that is uh, of interest. Um, Another one, of course, is a complete unbundled banking as a service model where you're going for a best-of-breed opportunity. I I particularly uh, find that one a very interesting model. But yet it requires orchestration. Right? So the complexity of managing a multi-source environment is clearly a little bit higher than going for single throat to choke, if I could use that horrible uh, um, uh, you know, phraseology. So, so banking as a service, acquisition, and of course, you know, full banking license is, is for, many, for many providers, especially the neobanks, that's what they've been going after, full banking license. You know, some interesting stats around the actual true cost of a full banking license I've been reading recently it tells me at least that that is probably from a cost perspective and a timing perspective, the least favorite at the moment, just because it's so difficult to get one and and in, in, incredibly intense in your organization. But yeah, so you've got all these options. You've got to decide based on what you want to achieve, which one
2: is right for you. Yeah, I, I do love it. I think it's, um, I, I think I'm paraphrasing um, Jim Barksdale, right? still when he talked about the two ways to make money is either bundled or unbundled. I think there's actually, that leaves a, a great chunk of real estate in between these two extremes. And Dieter, you touched on that with uh, finding these best and breed partners, which I don't think it fully qualifies as a, as a a complete rebundling of services, but you can certainly find these organisations that fit together as part of a jigsaw. And these organisations can almost be partially pre-curated to actually work together in a join that way before the the customer even goes on that that build versus buy journey, I think that's when the ecosystem of self partnership starts to to add true value to to those people who are looking to create this this incredible digital experience for for their end users. Which yeah, hopefully most people's
1: north star. Totally agree. I think I think there is definitely we're starting to see in the market. So if you think about. Banking as a service players, you know, you've got some pretty dominant names out there that will offer you a full bank and a service, a banking as a service kind of model. Fine. A lot of them don't, I mean, on purpose, they don't do the front end. They don't do KYC AML. So you've got to go solve for that. They often don't do FX. That's where they potentially partner with yourselves. Um, There might be one or two things that they don't do, but at the heart of it it is effectively, uh, you know, a bank in the box. Easy to do easy to, to contract, and fairly easy to scale. Although, as we were discussing before this call um, started, it's clear that when we look at the detail of those, the scaling dynamics are, are quite different between that proposition and the typical unbundled option. At least from our research, unbundled banking as a service build or the partnership orchestration model might at the moment have slightly higher uh, setup fees and, and, and costs to kind of enter that model, mainly just because the setup fees of individual partners are adding up. Right, so um, that's true, but they scale quite differently. And at least when you when you start scaling into the hundreds of thousands of customers, from our research, um, a part, the orchestrated partnership model seems to scale better and have far higher flexibility in terms of its ability to to create a competitive product because the restrictions of banking as a service model. I think comes into play at some point. And therefore, we've seen, I mean, we've got clients that launch very effectively on a, on a bass player's platform, but at some point down the line, once they've validated the proposition, they're starting to, to want to add more, you know, additional features and have a bit more freedom around the, 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 the design of a product, they often find that a little bit more, a, a little bit too constrained. And so, they then kind of move on to a potential partnership model. Um, I mean, again, it kind of depends what you want, but definitely the scaling dynamics are different. But I think what's missing to your point, just coming back to your point, is at the moment, the complexity of a partnership model, I think, has meant that historically a lot of people have shied away from that. I think that's starting to change. We're starting to see players enter that space, recognizing the need for some sort of orchestration between these partners. So, I mean, we've recently come uh, across a number of, of companies investing in building orchestration platforms specifically for the coordination and build-up of a digital bank. I find this really encouraging. And and I know that you guys have had some experience working with some of these players. And, I mean, maybe it'll be interesting to talk, talk to that, to your experience, but from our previous discussions, it's clear that the ability for you to integrate these partners is becoming better and better. And you're taking integration times from, from months down to weeks now. And that's encouraging because once we can start – Orchestrating these multiple players, as you say, in a bit more of an ecosystem kind of almost a, a coordinated way. I think there's an opportunity to work as a as an ecosystem of partners to bring down their setup costs to actually make it much more affordable to enter a, a partnership arrangement. Um, somebody's going to take the lead, though, and you know, I suppose that's, that's where you know one of the partnerships or, or one of the partners in that ecosystem needs to actually stand up and and lead that effort.
2: But it's definitely changing. I, I certainly said So, look, just name drop a few of Currency Cloud's partners. So, organisations like Integrated Finance, guys like Tokyo, who we know really well. Um, I absolutely agree. If you're looking to go down that that partnership or, or assembling a best-in-breed of of, of, our, of partners, an organisation like that is key to extracting some of the complexity tax. In actually piecing the 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 puzzle together and that lends itself to the the obvious things that, that everyone's searching for as you know early stage organizations so speed time to value it allows the clients or the, the the people buying the services to then focus on what they want to own as part of the value proposition which is typically the the customer experience and the user experience um and it it, it, it takes away the boring bits the plumbing um making a payment i'm sure there are other organizations that can make a cross-border payment my dollars are 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 no more gold-plated than anyone else's and so it's just a way to to find a, a solution that's easy to consume what i think is important with and this is more of the partnership angle rather than right creating value for the end customer is from a tactical standpoint to make these sort of like relationships work it's certainly important to take the time up front to to putting guardrails around what's appropriate for sales engagement and find that right level of strategic alignment and map stakeholders accordingly from lower level coders and developers right through to exec sponsorships. But again, it goes back to my initial point that there's got to be that that cultural match, and um, which is arguably, in my opinion, the, the, the secret sauce of any successful partnership ecosystem where you have this almost like unwritten rule to to create more value than you capture. It's an interesting point you make, though, which I hadn't necessarily put into thought, was one partner has usually got to take the initiative. Someone's got to stand at the front of the queue and say, I'm going to be responsible for pulling everyone else together. And it is typically going to be that orchestration layer that ties them together. But it might not be, I guess. And that's, you know, time will tell us to who actually steps up and shows the lead. Yeah, I think, I mean, from my perspective,
1: definitely orchestration players do have an opportunity here to really play a coordinating role, not just obviously in, in the run space, but actually the design of it. I mean, definitely our, our conversations with um, the team at in integrated finances has been fantastic in terms of, you know, their thinking that they're putting into into play now in terms of not just what they're doing today, but also down their roadmap in terms of their ability to start integrating all those other, you know, if you think about all the components you need to build a bank, you know, last time I counted was like, you know, more than 10 uh, functional capabilities that you're really thinking about stringing together and that's quite a lot if if, if, if if you have to tell me that i've got to build a bank coordinate 10 different parties that's you know versus one immediately you know I, conceptually I, it just sounds like you know a really complex thing so people like integrated finance and 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 talk IQ, uh, talk IO, they, they are they are literally playing that role so i do think it could be them it could of course also be some of the the, the uh, EMI license holders. I, th- I think there's there's a, there's a role to play if you, in the agency banking space, I think because that's one of the first things you've got to think about. Anybody that has an agency model has the ability, I think, to lead some of that conversation. They are the pr- principal risk owners in, 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 in a lot of these partnership models. And I think they, again, also have and should have a say in how this ecosystem is built up. So, you know, maybe some of the bin sponsors, maybe, you know, people like yourselves, if you are authorized EMIs, you have an opportunity to actually kind of come to market with some sort of a pre-built ecosystem and package. Um, I think it could make the decision for our clients a lot easier, having some sort of a pre-built idea around how to coordinate this ecosystem. I mean, it's still early days. I know you guys are thinking about that. and, and um, But,
0: again, we're, we're definitely seeing a need for that, a little bit more coordination just jumping in um you you two could obviously talk about this for hours um and i think it's fascinating. and and, i know we kind of position kind of three options i think it's the the first and the third are probably quite interesting and and maybe that's where we're getting into a, a good bit of debate um i just want to kind of dive into dive into some of that for you know the uninitiated and i i um uh, put myself in that category, um, right? The deep understanding. So we we understand, and I think we're saying the kind of off the shelf banking as a service providers um, have a huge part to play here, uh, and you know they're getting to market, getting people to market. They said in weeks rather than months, if not years. Um, I think what's interesting, and, and then on the other side, you have these what you're saying, the unbundled um, kind of banking as a service model, and you have these orchestration companies um who are kind of putting that together now let me ask a question around what i think one of the one of the cons potentially of using an off the shelf bass provider is, is there is sometimes kind of limited kind of proposition flexibility um it's you know the, the 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 ability to control that roadmap kind of lives with that bass provider rather than you so how, how does that change because on the surface one of these orchestration layers is effectively taking some best in breed uh, providers or you know call you know, let's call it ourselves let's have a look at currency cloud you know best and breed cross-border um payments provider but the orchestration layer is effectively taking that and delivering it so it's it's one you know one relationship that the the, the new digital bank has to offer so what what are the core cool differences between a off-the-shelf banking as a service provider and that orchestration layer
1: well i mean I'll, I'll i'll kick off i i think the first thing is the the typical banking as a service player really plays in um, the space of taking the role of, first of all, dealing with the safeguarding the safeguarding of cash, so both operational accounts as well as overnight safeguarding of cash, the typical bass player takes care of that, which is really one of your primary concerns with building a bank, is you have to have the operational accounts and the ability to safeguard funds overnight. They often, if there's a card product involved, they will be, act as a, 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 an issuer processor. They'll have an issuer processor component or partner that is actually bundled with them that gives you the ability to, to get a card into the market. Um, they'll have some basic, a lot of them will have some basic plugins uh, to open banking partners, although typically that's not directly included immediately. Same with FX. They, they might or might not provide an FX partner uh, in, in their model, but often that's excluded. Um, they will often have your Visa and MasterCard agreements um, kind of built in, so they'll act as your win sponsor, um, but things that they won't do. They won't do front-end, typically, uh, that are getting involved in that. Um, they won't do kyc ML. Transaction monitoring is often uh, not included. Um, they won't manage rewards, have any sort of loyalty engine behind them. They won't do personal finance management, um, and often some of the compliance and regulatory aspects they'll stay away from. So it really is, when you think about banking as a service, people like to think about it as a bank in a box, but when you lift the hood, there's still some components that you really have to think about uh, building yourself. So it's not quite as comprehensive as, as people think. So that's the first thing I'd like to, to mention. David, I don't know whether you you, you agree with that from your experience as well, but at least from our experience, the first thing is I have to say is that
2: banking as a service is not always the full bank in a box, I'd, I'd, I'd probably buy that. Certainly, Richard, Your key question is what's necessarily one of the, the, the cons of this this BasS model, and I think it's more about illustrating what are the, the pros of the the alternative. Which is, if you imagine um, currency cloud, Rich, we talk about being best and breed for cross border. We're we're an inch thick, but we're a mile deep in the sense that that's how good we are. Now, if you can take all the best organisations doing what they do in a joined up way, you then suddenly are. You know, a, a mile wide and a mile deep. Whereas, if you try and find one organization to do it all, I, I don't know if that organization exists. Um, I suspect not. So that's the value proposition, really, in the sense that you can you have a much richer subset of products. And we're, what we're certainly seeing is because the the big names, the the revolutes, the Montos, the Starlings, have now got a richer and richer set of products that the barrier to entry becomes higher and higher and higher to try and differentiate yourself from day one. So suddenly you can have quick speed to market, but even if you are launching with a matter of weeks, are you going to sell it? Or are you going to provide the services to anyone because they get such a, a complete set from, from existing players? And that's the bit that I can't quite reconcile in my own mind.
1: That's that's exactly it. I mean, I, I, I have the same question, uh, David, which is it is hard to see how any firm... Will come to market with a pure bass player and actually be able to win with the standard out-of-the-box service. I, I just, I, I really struggle to see how in the competitive market that exists today, to David's point, how you could launch something and expect that just to sell just
0: because it's there. And that's different than five years ago, probably, right? Because five years ago, that it was, it was a, a much less mature market. Yes. Uh, but actually what's happened, you know, and, and I said going back to all those household names, and I guess also the expectation of the consumer has, has changed dramatically. Absolutely. We're a very needy society now. And because if we see a you know a kind of very narrow niche offering being provided by one different side, we we, we expect that from everybody.
2: Yeah. yeah. I, I would I would go back further and say it's not just that the, the the underlying customers changed as well, in the sense that look, when I'm you know Millennial and younger, if they're 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 walking around with a, a coral pink card or they're using the Revolut when they go abroad, that's that's nothing new. But suddenly, I've got my my mum who's sixty-something, um, and she has a Revolut card. That's what's changed now. You're seeing the adoption within the mainstream, and I think that it's going to just get harder and harder to to win customers and keep customers. And I think that's an important part. Maybe buy, buying a few. A few 10,000 users for a, a referral model is one thing, but actually making sure they use that product continuously, both at home and abroad, and try and make it that primary bank account, that's
0: a really, really hard journey to take a customer on. So, I have a question on that because I have a, a, an opinion and I think it's interesting. And some of these neo banks in particular have done a, a fantastic and you know, incredible job of, of customer acquisition over the last kind of five, 10 years. And as Dave is saying, it's, it's going to become harder and harder. So does that really play into the hands of some of the embedded finance players who already have that customer base? They already have loyal customers because one of the issues in banks is trust, right? And it's, and it's you know, and, and trust, I guess is, well, I can't remember what the latest survey is, Is down to like 29% of people you know, trust their banking provider. But a lot of people kind of trust the brand. So does that push um, some of these kind of brands, you know, further up the racetrack and actually, you know, especially for newer entrants, because actually one of the one of the big challenges here is, is acquiring customers, and now if you can if there's a wealth of options of actually integrating embedding kind of banking services into your instance into your application, you're already a few million customers ahead of your your competition
1: yeah scale matters right scale matters dramatically, so if you're able to find an ecosystem to play into in the embedded finance space i think you you're absolutely ahead, ahead of your your competitors uh, i mean we're definitely seeing new entrants the the way they so it's almost kind of you're either going to compete head-on and you've got to be feature rich to to be able to even stand a chance you really got to differentiate yourself or you're going to pick a a, a vertical within financial services it might be unsecured lending. As such, and you you want to basically find a platform or an ecosystem play, to play into, and you're going after scale, and you're using strategic partnerships to access existing uh, customers and, and revenue pools. That is absolutely one of the ways that you can kind of jump ahead of the queue um, and avoid having to compete head-on with the, the the neobanks. It is, of course, interesting to kind of see whether embedded finance in its in its its own right, whether that's going to be. Uh, become harder and harder to do from a regulatory perspective. What's going to happen in that space? Is embedded finance going to be kind of regulated out of the market, or is the regulator going to find a way to support that? But definitely, platform plays. And if you think about the intersection between financial services and so many other industries, a lot of our clients are doing exactly that, right, trying to identify. First of all, banks turning into platform businesses is now all, you know, that's, that's the main strategy in town. And secondly, finding these ecosystem opportunities, whether it's an intersection with an e-commerce business, you know, and I think that's also interesting, just watching e-commerce space reverse engineering into financial services. Everybody's recognizing that there are untapped revenue pools, new revenue pools that financial services can play play in. And whether it's banks stepping into them or e-commerce players reverse engineering into financial services, it's happening. Embedded finance is happening. It's a revenue pool that you should tap into if you're not thinking about
2: it. I mean, it's very difficult to add anything on detail. You're getting a pretty good synopsis of my, my thinking as well. I think the only additional layer to maybe just put on top of that is to say, well, it's, it's still always important from like a bit of a products and solutions guidance and what problem am I going to try and solve for the customer that's not being solved right now? And is that best done by a, an existing bank or a digital bank or a legacy bank expanding their capabilities and doing something else and moving into a different segment? Or is this from a an econ platform or my uh, I don't know, health insurance provider or a, another part, a, another existing business trying to reverse engineer into to financial services. And again, I, I suspect it's going to be a bit of both and there are going to be some winners and losers. And the people who will win, I would bet pretty heavily on, are relying on best in class partners to try and take them on that journey, either rather than do it themselves or, or, or buy a more generalist solution.
1: Yeah, and, and not just partners, David. I think the, the the key thing to winning here is, you know, it is it is in the platform space. I think there's research out there, quite you know, public research. You can you can find that some of the studies show that more than eighty percent of platform plays fail after three years because they 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 fail to identify the value proposition, the problem they're trying to solve. Right. So connecting a multi-sided marketplace with some sort of transactional play, onboarding customers is fairly easy if you incentivize the hell out of it. If you if you if you make it free on the one side and or you start giving away enough enough rewards or, or discounts, you can attract people to your platform. The question is whether that's a sustainable business model. And often these you know three four years in, when your basically your investment horizon is, has run out and you now need to have this platform effectively demonstrate positive network effects. It's got to stand on its own. When incentives get um, uh, retracted, the business model collapses because at the heart of it these platform players haven't they haven't really realized the problem they're trying to solve so so we've seen a lot of platform models stand up with some really bizarre um, bizarre use cases and bizarre partners that in their own right on their own they're great partners but what they forget to solve for is, like, why would a person go through a platform to access those partners, especially in, in an app economy? We've grown up in an app economy in, 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 in much of the U.S. and Europe and, and large parts of, of, of Africa and well-developed markets globally, actually. App economy, the iOS app store, um, means that we're used to accessing individual partners um, for services. Take Uber as an example. Yet today, you've got platform players building super apps or platforms where you can book your Uber via their platform and, and, you know, for some marginal discount. You know, the friction of onboarding to that platform and the, the, the user experience that gets created on top of an existing operating model that Uber has already established is there's just too much friction in it for me to over the, – the issue of me accessing Uber via that platform is not worthwhile. The discount I get from that is not worthwhile the effort. Whereas I can literally disintermediate that platform and go straight to Uber because I've got a relationship with them. so it, it I think in, in many instances people onboard partners they create these customer journeys and they forget actually why they're doing it you know its it, it just and the business model collapses so so that's the issue with embedded finance on the wrong use case or the wrong customer journey and with the wrong
0: partners um, it, it, it's not as simple as people think. I did, I did, as I said, I think you two could talk about this for hours, and I'd be interested to understand how many times you've gone past last orders you know, in, in the bar kind of uh, talking about this. But listen, I think it's fascinating. Um, I have a, a couple more questions. Um, one is around, you know, we've, we've focused a lot on this. There has been a lot of focus on the digitalization of the consumer and the optionality there is for the consumer. Two, two of the kind of challenger banks that I, I really like are out in the U.S., in Mercury and Robe, because they're focused on um, SMEs or SMBs and, and small businesses. And I think there's been probably less um, less being built and less development in that space. So so why is that? And and do you think that kind of the emergence of this kind of unbundled partnership model kind of helps? Because inherently it's, it's probably harder and there's been less digitalization you know, in, in businesses. But wh- where do we stand on um, you know some of these solutions and solving for businesses rather than just consumers?
1: So, I mean, I, I have a view in the SMB space, I think part of the problem has been that, the traditional corporates that service the market. Um, so on the, on the corporate space, for instance, if you think about the traditional business relationship, it's it's been down to brokers or relationship managers maintaining a, a business relationship with a corporate. So if I'm an institution, a financial services organization, I would often deliver those services through a relationship banker um, and it could be a B2B relationship of scale. So institutions then you know, you sell once and there's quite a bit of volume behind it. The issue with the small and medium enterprise uh, um, segment, of course, is the volumes are far lower. And so the, the traditional distribution model that was reliant on relationship managers just doesn't cut it. it. The profitability is just too low. The ability for relationship managers to maintain hundreds of thousands of relationships with, with the small and medium enterprise um, is just not feasible um, a profit, to do it profitably. So, So I think it's the time has come for digital solutions to provide an alternative distribution channel for financial services to SMEs. And it's only really recent advances in technology and the rise of partners, to your point, Richard, that are specializing in providing commercial or business um, services, financial business services that has made it possible for us to even consider this, a digital distribution channel to service these SMEs. So, so I think absolutely it's it's almost that the enterprise uh, technology has matured to a point where you can now deploy it um, uh, in, in this manner, and it's moving away from relationship banking to kind of more digital banking in the institutional um, space, specifically SMEs. I, I, I think we're seeing more and more of that. If I was launching a digital bank today, I think launching a commercial business bank is by far the better option over retail. I mean, I can think of one reason uh, 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 immediately, which is interchanges just um, <laughs> far higher on commercial cards than on retail. So, if you, if, if your play was just a, a transactional account, uh, business accounts make far more sense in terms of ability to generate revenue. But it's also it's a it's a segment of the market that I think that needs digital banking more more than the retail banks. Retail banks have been have come and gone. We don't we haven't yet seen enough. Activity in the SME space for digital banks.
2: Yeah, I mean, I I I, I won't lie. I'm I'm by no means a, a subject matter expert in in this, but I believe one of the the, the crucial differences been that between that retail offering and the 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 banking the digital banking for for small medium sized businesses is is the specific onboarding journey. It's it's a lot easier to acquire those digital customers when you have again viral campaigns like you know user get user, which allows you to to, to suddenly scoop up a, a great big subset of customers. I'm not sure. What the marketing angle is, or indeed the the digital capabilities are to to seamlessly um, onboard a, a a small corporate. But again, if someone's cracked that particular nut, then I, I think there's definitely a a rich service, a rich field of services you can give that 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 segment of that community, which is only going to empower them and 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 turn them into to, to bigger and, and more successful companies in the long run.
1: Although, I mean, we've, we've had some recent success in that space. I mean, we, one of our clients, the Luxembourg organization, actually, we, we did exactly this, is, is sole for institutional onboarding uh, by creating a, a near paperless onboarding process, taking the onboarding of complex institutions and ent- entities like SPVs and trusts and so forth, and, 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 and delivering a digital experience that, that really does exactly that, which is reinvent the customer experience. I think in the digital onboarding of onboarding of institutions is hard. 100%. It's far more complex to do, and it's often kind of fraught with a number of, of of issues. What we haven't seen, and this is the reason why we actually built something from scratch, was organizations focused on solving for the customer problem. They're either compliance organizations that that build a workflow tool to solve for this, or they're workflow engines building an onboarding tool and building in regulation, but nobody's really started with the customer in mind and, and solve from that perspective. So, that, that's kind of what we've done recently. We've been quite successful in solving for that, but it's it's not done that often, and I think we're still in the early stages of that.
0: When, when we had the, the, the pre-podcast kind of catch up, I think Dieter kind of raised his eyebrows to say that this was a 45-minute long episode, but um, we've, we could go on for an hour and 45 minutes. Um, and we're, we're barely scratching the surface, right? But I think it's been a fascinating chat. Um, I'll, I'll leave you with one quick question. Um, and, and we've talked a lot about some of the... Uh, the challenges in neobanks banks coming into this segment, or some of the embedded finance plays. We touched a little bit on on traditional banks, but what is it that these traditional banks need to do to, I guess, stay relevant and to stay competitive, not just for their sake, but for for the end user's sake? And what they need to do, but also it's a it's a two part question. Who are going to be the winners and losers in that space? Are there, are there people you're saying that are building stuff saying they've got it right, and people should look at them? and and put them up on the pedestal. I'll
1: give you my point of view, Richard, which I think is the faster organisations can recognise that the time has passed for you to be able to out-innovate the market. I just don't think there's any corporate in this world that can absolutely say they've got all the capacity, skill, intellect, and funding available to out-innovate the market. There's just so much activity in the market, so many good people doing incredibly smart things, that the first thing you recognize is you cannot out-innovate the market. Therefore, you have to build the capability to be able to create strategic partnerships for the right things. You have to recognize the value of using partnerships to, to effectively deliver in a different way. Um, I just don't think that there's any other way of delivering complex change. And building a digital bank, whether you're an incumbent, a legacy transformer, or whether you're a non-financial organization moving into the space, cannot be done alone. And I honestly think that that's the, that's the focus that organizations should uh, uh, think about, is how do I create an organization that can partner at pace, identify strategic partners, partner and test the value at pace, and then launch and scale those with the help of, of, of uh, partners instead of doing it themselves that's kind of to me the key
2: message um and i stick by that as like the golden rule number one yeah i mean i I don't know if i can name any names off the top of my head but certainly to reach the the people who will win it's to repeat my earlier point so those who grasp that need to get the right culture in place that that culture of collaboration that that culture of test fail and learn and, and iterate um but also there's certainly an approach to to risk and, and and the way that traditional banks have an existing framework of policy that's used to then determine everything that happens downstream of that if you want to do something and the the rule book doesn't work quite right my thought process is rip up the rule book do the right thing for the customer and then write the rules accordingly that is a little bit dare i say it naive but I think those are the banks that have that sort of slightly more customer-centric approach are going to be the ones that will have the long-term
0: success. Yeah, listen, I think that's a good place to end. I think it's, it's ultimately understanding that we're all here to deliver service to, to the end user. Wherever we sit in that chain and there's there's you know, such an abundance of, uh, to your point, kind of talent and talented people building services that actually creating an ecosystem that is so beneficial to you and I, and hopefully in time to you know, the, the small businesses and, and even institutions, I think it's going to be fascinating. And, and listen, we're all lucky. The three of us are lucky to have been in this industry for, for for a few years and seeing that change. But it's it's scratching the surface. I think you know the next ten years will be just as interesting. So listen, that that, that brings it to a wrap. I, I do have to apologise. It wasn't the hundredth episode. I think it was about the hundred and fiftieth episode. Um, but no, no less important. And it's been a fascinating chat um dave dita thank you so much for coming on um i think we all know where we can find you dave um at currency club where where can people find out more about kind of you and elixir and what you're doing www.elixir.com e-l-i-x-i-r-r fantastic thanks again you've been listening to the payments innovation podcast to ensure that you never miss an episode subscribe now in itunes or your favorite podcast player thanks for listening until next time